Welcome to the New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, the New Mind Creator. Today, I will be interviewing Bill Bice. Make sure to hit the subscribe button so that you will receive alerts when new episodes are available each week on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. I remember going horseback riding for the first time. I had to have been, I would say, between 8 and 10 years old. And I remember the horse just being on the saddle and riding the horse, the horse just feeling so strong and massive till it was like unreal to me. How has horseback riding been for you? When did you begin horseback riding? So I, I started uh, more more seriously when, when I met my my wife 16 years ago, who has always, always loved horseback riding. And I just find it to be a, you know, an enormously uh, peaceful experience. It's a, just a great way to, to relax while, while getting to be in nature. Right. So anyone else in your family has been horseback riding or just primarily you? Uh, it's mainly my wife and I, our, our kids join us, uh, every once in a while, but it's a really, you know, it's a really great escape for us to, to just go do something together. Right. So are you, I should say, are you an outdoors type person? Yeah, I really love the outdoors. I, I, I'm very fortunate given that, that I, I live in the, in the mountains between Albuquerque and Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it's just, uh, it's a beautiful part of the country and there's hundreds of miles of trails surrounding us. And we have, you know, we have enough room to have, horses on our property and, and tons of trails to go mountain biking and hiking and do what, do whatever we want. Wow. That sounds nice and peaceful. I know being in a city, it's difficult to get that uh, peaceful and serene time with nature, but being um, in a small town where I was raised in, uh, you have, it seems like you have more time, of silence and there's not much stimuli going on to really help calibrate, recalibrate yourself for the next day. Yeah. I mean, as, as we're talking, I'm, I'm sitting here in, uh, in downtown Chicago and I, you know, I, I love coming to the, to the city, but uh, I love even more getting to getting to go back home. <laughs> yeah, I understand. So your company boom time, what, what, was the catalyst or to make you to cause you to create your company? Well, you know, it really came out of, out of my experience in the companies that, that I have started and invested in previously. And uh, you know, if you're, if you're building a company, if you're an entrepreneur, you, you put all of this huge effort into creating a product or service and then how much success you really get is dependent on how good you are at the go-to-market. And so uh, there was this, you know, fairly obvious correlation that in every company we've been really good at, at marketing, you know, we've gotten, we've gotten the reward for, for, for doing so. And so it just came out of my frustration of how do you, how do you get great marketing for, for whatever you're doing and, and how do you do that in a way that's, uh, that, that really has scale and efficiency. 
So I know you're an entrepreneur. Is, was there anyone who influenced you to become an entrepreneur? Was it a, a family member or just observation of others? Well, so when I was going to, to high school, I got, I got kind of bored and I jumped over the, the fence into the little strip mall that was, that was right next door. And there was a, a family business there, a, a, a sporting goods store. They had, uh, had three different kinds of stores in this, in this one strip mall. And so I got to see this, uh, you know, the, this family-owned uh, entrepreneurship up close, and and really just fell in love with with them getting to to build their own lives around something that that they wanted to do, and so that was that was my first exposure to business at age fourteen, getting to to work in that sports store and getting uh, Tico and Marge Navarro, they 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 were the owners. Who helped me start my own little uh, own little business at at that young age, putting putting on road races, and and it was just it just felt completely natural to me. I mean, I I, I feel like I was born an entrepreneur, and you know the reality is I got really lucky to to have the opportunity to have, have parents that supported me in doing what I wanted to do, and and so I just naturally grew from there, and you know I started my first software company when I was eighteen. And had had absolutely no idea what I was what I was doing, but I just I just kept after it. So, did you, were you confident that your companies that you started that they would succeed? Were you confident, or you were just doing things that you were probably interested in, or thought that it would add value to people? Well, yeah, both. I mean, I, I think you have to have a bit of an unnatural confidence to to be an entrepreneur because so many people are going to tell you no and, and you have to, you have to go do it anyway. And, you know, I, age 18, I, I already thought I knew it all. So it actually took me a really long time to figure it out because I wasn't, I wasn't really open to mentorship and advice. I, I try to be exactly the, the, the opposite today because it's, you know, so much faster to learn from people who have already been there. But, but I was, uh, I was persistent. Like, you know, if I, if I have a, a superpower, it's just stubbornness. And so keeping, keeping after it, it's, it's really the, I, I think it's an undervalued part of the recipe for success because there's so much luck involved in, in how well you do in terms of the, the scale of the success and just staying at something long enough and working hard at it gives you so many oppor- so many more opportunities to get lucky. You know, and there's so many people that are really successful that I think just don't appreciate how how lucky they were to be at the you know place and time they were and the opportunity they had. Uh, you know, I, I use Bill Gates and Steve Jobs as the perfect example of this. They're, they're both brilliant entrepreneurs. But what they were able to do, and the reason we know their names is because they happened to be born at exactly the right time. They happened to go to schools that just happened to have computer programs as part of the curriculum at, a, at an age when that was you know, basically unheard of that got them exposure to this brand new area that was just emerging at the time. So this whole series of things that had to happen just perfectly. And, and I'm sure they would have had some level of success anyway because because of how you know, how smart and driven they were, but to be what they became for us to talk about them requires this, you know, 
amazing series of very lucky events to occur. It sounds like being able to stick to something and be persistent is an extremely valuable tool because we all are different on cognitive levels and different gifts that we have, but absolutely anyone on earth can decide to stick to something and see it out. Is that correct? Absolutely. And and your likelihood of success, if you do that, I mean, it took me 15 years to build that first company. A big part of that's because I, I had no idea what I was doing, but, but it also took time to really develop and, and have the, the opportunities that, uh, that came to us. And, and I think timing is really underappreciated also. It's, it's part of the same issue. It's like the, you take the same idea, the same company, and just move it forward or backwards by two or three years, and you can dramatically change what happens. So you look at the, at the Palm Pilot versus the iPhone. And you know, the iPhone has, has created the world's most valuable company in Apple, and the Palm Pilot is, is dead. And yet they're essentially the same idea, but all you have to do is move it forward a few years and it completely changes the trajectory. Yeah, that's powerful. Timing is is key as well, as well as uh, persistence. So true. That sounds that's a very valuable lesson. So how how did you was law something you were passionate about? I you know, I wouldn't say that. I it was more that I was passionate about about creating software, and I happened to get a law firm as a client. And I've actually always th- thought that that not being a lawyer, not having a JD, was really advantageous in in that first software company I created, which was which was practice management software for law firms, because I had to I had to actually pay attention to to what my clients wanted and what they needed. I wasn't I wasn't an attorney that already thought. They knew how a law firm should run. And, and law firms are actually, because every kind of different practice area within a law firm is a very different kind of business. And so it's, it's actually a very challenging area to, to automate. Gotcha. How much time did you spend or did you invest in building your business at the beginning? Oh, it was, it was crazy. So the way I made up for having no idea what I was doing, but it was, was just by, by working way too much. So I was, you know, I was working 80 or 100 hours a week. Um, I really believe that I accomplish more now by, by just being smarter and wiser about how to do it. And in 40 hours, I'm, I'm getting more done than I was, uh, you know, 80 hours when, uh, when I was younger. But I, I just... I just worked enormously hard at it and we had a small team where we, you know, we all believed in the same thing and we were, we were all working really hard. So I know you've said there are only two ways for a law firm to grow. What are they? Yeah. So this is, this is a really uh, uh, interesting issue. So the, uh, you know, very common way for a law firm to grow is just to go, steal a partner from another firm and bring all their clients with them. And that actually takes a really long time to, to be profitable. And I think the same issue applies to a lot of businesses. So, uh, you know, mergers and acquisitions, buying some other business, about 80% of the time it doesn't work. But there, but there is one form of, of, of growing your business that, 
that always works, which is word of mouth. And, and now we live in this, you know, wonderfully digitally connected age where we can actually amplify the effect of this thing. I mean, it kind of sounds like your dad's marketing, right? Like, you know, word of mouth, it just happens. But, but now we can actually make it happen. We can do things to cause word of mouth to happen and create referrals and business that, that wouldn't otherwise exist. Now, it requires you to do all the hard work first, right? You have to have a great product or service. You have to really be taking care of your, of your clients. But if you have referrals coming in today, if you really focus on this approach, then for most, you know, for most consultants, coaches, business owners, the, the growth you want is, is just sitting right there if you take advantage of it. So you're in your fourth company in legal. Tell us about your experience in building like legal technology companies. Yes, I, I think the the secret sauce for me has has always, you know, there's there's a lot of things that I that I had to learn the hard way, but the one thing that that I've always been really good at is is listening to my clients and and understanding what they need. And this is an area where, you know, the difference between a a PI attorney and an IP attorney. You, you, you don't want to be dyslexic in this uh, market because, you know, personal injury and intellectual property are really just completely different kinds of, of practice areas. And so they're really all different businesses. And, and we, we saw the opportunity in that very early of, of building something that was really flexible that could apply to, uh, to all of them. And, and because of that, we, we became the biggest in our niche. I got to sell my little software company to sort of the 800-pound gorilla of the legal market, which is uh, the, the West division of Thomson Reuters. And that got me on the management team of, of this $2 billion a year business, which was just a, you know amazing education experience to, to see how that kind of company was run. How do you think marketing marketing is different in legal versus other industries? Well, it's uh, what's really interesting about that is it's so person to person and reputation and word of mouth based. So it was it was really my experience in legal that that led me to this focus on referral based marketing because it's the only thing that works in, in legal. And in most other businesses, it's the thing that works the best. And, and just focusing on this one thing, I mean, for, for any kind of, of uh, business like a law firm where it's really expertise driven, by far the best marketing that you can do is to share your expertise. And if you have some kind of business where you're focusing on a certain niche, then you have the ability to do this because you get a perspective and insight because you may be working with, you know, hundreds of businesses in your in, in your particular niche, where the the owner of that business, you know, they're they're spending all their time running their business, and so you're you're able to give them bring them perspective that's very valuable to them, just because of that insight that you have working across a number of their peers, and so that's very true for for a law firm, for any kind of professional service, for you know, a tremendous number of, of uh, B2B kinds of, of businesses, this insight, perspective-driven approach to, to marketing, it, it's really bringing value to your prospective customers, and it's the, it's the best way that you can market. 
how how are what are some ways you think or believe that someone could share their expertise in their given um, expertise because um, you know we they're various different of expertise. So what are some ways that people can begin sharing it um, that could help increase their uh, marketing? Yeah, so if, you, if your clients are businesses, then you really only have to be good at, at three channels, your, your website, email, and LinkedIn. So we, we want your, your website should be the centerpiece of, of all your marketing. So we always want to drive people back to your website. And, and as much as we're all frustrated by email, you know, what we see in the data is that the email is, is what absolutely works. And, and the thing that's such, always such a tough conversation there is we, we, always, we all get too much email. And the way you overcome that as a business is to, act, is to send more email. And the key is that it's all about the content. So if what you're sending is valuable and really helpful to, to your audience, you're going to help their business, their, you know, their career, then they, they'll want to get your emails. And it, it makes it amazingly effective. If, you know, if you're talking about yourself all the time, well, that's the number one mistake in marketing. And frankly, nobody cares. They, they don't care about the new client that you got, the new person that you hired, the award that you won. It, it's great to, to talk about that stuff, but that, that should be 10% of what you do. 90% should be talking about what's important to, to your audience. And, and then the, the third channel is, is LinkedIn, which has just grown like gangbusters over the, the, the last two years in terms of not, not just members, but the amount of time that people spend on LinkedIn. So it's the perfect way to grow your audience. I, you know, I look at LinkedIn as the ideal networking event. I get to go someplace where I can meet exactly the right people. I don't have to eat horrible food while I'm doing it. And it's, and it's really efficient. But you also need to treat it like that networking event where you're going in to build your network to be valuable to the people that you meet. If you, you know, if you walk into a cocktail party, meet somebody and immediately start into a sales pitch, rarely is that going to work out well. And the, the same thing is true on LinkedIn. But that's the beauty of this approach. You get really good at those three channels and, and you, you have a marketing machine that, that will take your businesses as far as you want to go. What what are some big mistakes that businesses and firms make with their websites? Because you meant that was one of the channels. Yeah, and the website's so crucial. Like every every email you send out, every LinkedIn post that you make should always drive people back to your website. And and when somebody comes to your website for the first time, if if we're talking about this kind of you know B two B you know niche. Uh, context, you know, the number one thing that somebody's going to want to know is who's behind the company. So the, the way your homepage should work is it should say why you do what you do, what you do, and then it should immediately take you to, to who you are about the team. Because if, if you look at the analytics for your website, the, the second most visited page on your site is about us. Because nobody's going to work with you if they don't understand who you are. And it's, it's really the advantage that a small business has against your larger competitors. We, we call it putting a face on the business and you want to, you want to take full advantage of that. Some, sometimes business, small business owners, they want to look like they're much bigger than they are. And so they don't do this. And yet it's one of the biggest advantages that, that you have. 
And so it's really about controlling the customer journey. Let's, let's take people to the information they really want. And then once we get them to the about us page, so you can go do this right now, pull up, you know, any uh, random service provider, look at their website. They, they probably don't uh, immediately talk about who they are. And then when you, when you go find the about us page yourself and you scroll down to the bottom, it just ends. And what you want to do is take them to the next natural place in the story that you want to tell. Have a big button that makes it obvious where you're supposed to go next and take them to the next step in the story. That's how we manage the customer journey and, and really tell, tell the whole story. So it's definitely you need to be strategic in what, what you're doing in order to make it effective. Um, I've been on websites that was confusing and I'm like, this is way too much stuff and information till it's almost like a turnoff. So the valuable pieces of information that sounds like it's most important to telling the story. Yeah, it absolutely is. And you, you really have to, to hone your message. And, and this is where the data is, is so important because if you're, if you're following the, the analytics and understanding how people are really using your website, then you can get you can get really great at telling telling that story, and you know. And then the the second biggest mistake that I just see over and over again on companies' websites is that, you know, our number one goal is to capture the prospective clients that are coming to us, and so what what we really want is their email address, and and you're going to have to give something really valuable in order to capture that email address. You know what what I always talk about is whatever advice you consider the you know the most valuable that you have that's what you should be giving away for free on your website in order to to capture those leads and referrals and then what you do is build a nurturing campaign that is a a series of drip emails that tell your story over time because you're just never going to get the full story across the first time somebody comes to your website we've got to walk them through get a you know, get a series of micro commitments from them that leads up to capturing their email address and then getting this opportunity to, to really, we get to talk to them forever. And we, you know, no third party media company that we have to pay like that, that audience that you own and control, it's, it's really the most undervalued asset in every business. So why do you believe email is so effective? Well, because what I do is follow the data, right? I'm, I'm I'm a programmer at, at heart, and so when I when I tackled marketing, I just naturally looked at it in terms of the of the data, and seeing what works and what doesn't, constantly testing, and just always iterating. And and what came out of that is that, you know, it's it's another ninety ten rule. Like ninety percent of the effort is in creating really great content. It doesn't matter how good the tactics are. It doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter what the strategy is if if that strategy isn't we're going to create really great content that really speaks to our audience and helps them. And then if we do that, you know, then the taxes become important because we can, we can make that more effective by, uh, by doing it in the right way. But when you, when you follow the data, you just see that, that getting somebody to that, that commitment level where they, they give you your email address and now you have permission to talk to them. That's what turns them into uh into a qualified, qualified lead that you actually get, uh, get a new sales opportunity out of. 
So I know that you mentioned, uh, I believe you said drip emails over time. Yeah, it's, it's the easiest thing. This is the lowest hanging of low hanging fruit for, for the majority of businesses, which is let's, let's capture our prospects from, from all the places they come from. So if you have a, if you have a sales team, it's getting every contact they make. It's everybody who's in your network. If, you know, if you're starting out in your new business for the first time, it's taking everybody that you know and putting it into your database and every, every new person you meet, capturing their information and then sending a drip campaign that over a series of five to 10 emails tells the full story of, of what you do. And we normally match that up to whatever the sales cycle is for, uh, for what you're doing. So if it, you know, if it normally takes 30 days from when you meet somebody new to, to when they become a client, that's the time period that your drip campaign should, uh, should run over. So is there, how often, well, I know you said there's a time period. So I know I've visited sites and I had to give my email and they began to inundate me with emails. So it turned me off. Is there a calculated amount of emails? It's like how often you should send them without turning the customer off? Well, I think even more than the timing is the value that's in that. So they were probably sending you emails just saying bye, bye, bye over and over again, as opposed to mm -hmm. really sharing information with you. I mean, there's a reason you went to that site. They, they, had, they had something that you, that you needed, mm -hmm. an, an area that you needed to learn more about. And, and if, they, if you make that educational and consultative, then those emails are not, you know, they're not annoying, they're not bothersome, they're suddenly valuable. And so it's just, it's just changing your perspective on what the information is that, that you're sharing. The timing's really based on, on what your sales cycle looks like and, uh, and how urgent the need is. So if you're in something where people are making a decision in a week because it's that kind of quick cycle, then you're going to send several emails pretty, pretty fast. But if it's a, you know, if it's a 60 to 90 day sales cycle, then you want to spread that over time so that you're staying in front of them. And, and really one of the biggest opportunities, so if, if, you, if you have more of a you know, traditional Salesforce kind of, of model, the, the problem with that is just the basic human psychology. You, you meet a, a new prospective client, and if your salesperson doesn't see a commission check in the next you know, 30 to 60 days, they're probably not doing a great job of following up with our prospect, even though they might be ideal client six months or 12 months from now. So this is where if we just, if we just get all those new contacts into our database, and then we have regular emails going out that are, that are useful to that audience, then when they are ready to buy, you've already built a relationship with them. They already really understand. And, and, you know, they, you've become a thought leader for them in this, in your area of expertise. So, so you, uh, you've mentioned this uh, several times already. Seems like a common theme. So substance is extremely important. And the method is secondary, even though the methods need to be done as well. It does. It's really that without the substance, none of the other details are going to matter. And, 
and this is where most businesses really struggle because it's tough to do this kind of really good content. In fact, I almost never see a business be able to do it successfully internally. You've got all the ideas, right? I can, I can sit down with a business owner and in 30 minutes brainstorm and have, uh, you know, enough incredible ideas for six months of content. The hard part is actually writing the content. So the best way for you to do that is, is get a writer who, who already knows your audience. Um, th this is what I call the copywriter problem. You, you have somebody who's really good at writing and, you know, last week they were working with a car dealership and this week they're supposed to understand, you know, your really complicated B2B offering. It's just, it's not realistic. You need to find somebody who comes out of your market, already understands your audience, can just take your ideas and run with it. So but what we've done is built a, a network of subject matter experts. We've got over 300 of them now that allow us to create a steady flow of great content in, you know, all kinds of areas. Right. So what, what's the biggest opportunity that most attorneys or businesses, they aren't taking advantage of in growing their own practice? It, it's really this, this issue of, of not being, I mean, if we, if we think about the, what's our core goals for marketing, it's, it's number one, capture all of the opportunities we have. So every, every lead and referral that's coming to us. And then two, following up with all of those with the nurturing campaigns that we've been talking about. And then three is, is staying top of mind with that audience that we're building. This is really the foundation of your marketing. And, and you want to put that foundation in place before you spend $1 on advertising, before you put you know, more, any more effort into reaching out to, uh, you know, in your business community. Because the way you're going to get the, the return on that investment for, for your time, for those ad dollars, is by having that marketing foundation in place. And that's, that's what most businesses are missing. They just they haven't built that foundation. And, and so it's, I, I call it random acts of marketing. That, that's what happens when you don't have that foundation. It's just, you know, you, you're kind of moving from one shiny object to the next. So for small businesses or one person businesses, are there, is there anything that they could do that's less expensive to create the marketing that they would need to grow their businesses? Yeah, you, you can do exactly this for yourself. And, and I think the best way to do it is to have the, the golden hour of marketing. So in, and salespeople often talk about the golden hour of prospecting where you just block off this time and, and all you're doing is, is calling prospective clients. And, the, and really the only realistic way to get it done when you're you know, either a one-person shop or starting, you know, you're, you're starting a new business, you've got to do that same thing. You need the golden hour of marketing where every day from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., all you're going to do is send out connection requests on LinkedIn to exactly the, the kind of prospective clients that you want to make, make new posts on LinkedIn out of the content that you're sitting down and writing. And in the moment your business starts to take off and you have the ability to do so, go find that writer that can, that can take the, the most time consuming part off of you so that you have really good content. All you've got to do is review it and then you can go and post it on your website post it onto LinkedIn, stay in front of that audience that you're growing. This, this is the, 
the easiest and most effective marketing that, that any, you know, any new business coming out of the gate can do. So have you written any books or created any uh, thing in particular? Yeah. So there's, uh, if, if you come to, uh, to our website at boomtime.com, you can get, so just like I was suggesting, you need to have something really valuable in exchange for your email address. Ours is the B2B marketing playbook. We've, we've taken all the things that we have learned and, and captured that and just laid out. Here's, here's exactly what you need to do. And I want to see as many small businesses do this as possible because I'm just, I'm really passionate about small business. It's, you know, it's the driver for employment. It's where innovation comes out of, you know, if, and yet if we don't get better at marketing in our small businesses, it's just the, the landscape is, is so much more complicated now that without that, it's just, it's becoming increasingly difficult to, uh, to compete. So we just take, we, we follow our own advice. We take all the things that we've learned and, and we share it. I've, uh, I'm now following in your foot, footsteps. I've started the, the B2B word of mouth marketing podcast. And we just, we just talk about exactly the things that we have learned in working with several hundred businesses and, and following the data in their marketing. Wow. And what's your, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you with through your website? That's correct. Well, the website is great. I mean, I love talking about marketing. You can reach out to me at, at CEO at boomtime.com. And of course you can find me on LinkedIn and, and you'll see us doing exactly what I'm, what I'm recommending. It's what we do for ourselves. It's the, you know, it's the primary way that we get new clients. Great. So what's your one to grow on? What valuable piece of information would you like to leave our audience with? So, you know, there's, uh, if you're looking for great expertise in, in marketing, um, you know, all of Seth Godin's work is, is, is really good. His, uh, his books on marketing are a great foundation in, in this approach. The, the particular thing that we have really learned from and applied to small business, it comes out of research in Fortune 500, it's called the Challenger Sale. And it's, it's taking this insight, perspective-driven approach to marketing. They, they demonstrated how enormously successful it is in the Fortune 500. And we've taken and had great success in, in small businesses with the same approach. Thank you for listening to The New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, The New Mind Creator. This podcast has been sponsored by Abundant Sports and True Serum. Head over to www.mauriceflournoy.com to receive more motivation and insight to help create your new mind.